the word of God. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars from there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If these came to you, if plunderers came by night, how will you be, how you have been destroyed? Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If, if great gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have, those with pe- at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set up a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloft, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over this disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they have never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Those of Negeb shall possess Mount Esau. Those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim, the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of Negeb. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is the word of God. Good morning. Uh, I am Paul Major. I'm one of the interns. Uh, let me stress the don't over-criticize thing. Uh, that's a really uh, big perk about this. So uh, if you have criticism, give it to someone else. I'm fine with you talking behind my back. Uh, 
Just not to my, not to my face. Um, and it also, in my defense, I picked a long passage because I'm just a disciple of Pastor Howard. Uh, so, uh, preaching from the book of Obadiah, let me just dive right in. God has enemies. We sometimes find this impossible to believe uh, we, because we'd rather believe in an all-loving, forgive-and-forget, uh, Santa Claus kind of God. You know, he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows when you've been bad or good, so be good, for goodness sake. Uh, but there's really not a threat about being bad. No one's ever really received coal, right? Santa is all around a good guy. And so that's the kind of God we like to believe in, but that's not the God of the Bible. God is unspeakably good and forgiving, and in fact, God is love. But it's for this very reason that he has enemies, because in our sin, we hate love. But who are God's enemies? In our day and age, it's as easy as turning on the news uh, to see those we consider enemies of God. Some say it's the Muslims. Some say it's the atheists. I think it's Nick Saban. Uh, That's a football joke for those of you that didn't get it. Um, You know, maybe it's the people at MSNBC, or maybe it's the people at Fox News. It's so easy for religious conservatives to label any opponent as not only their enemies but God's enemies. It's equally as easy for religious liberals to claim intolerance as the enemy of a loving, gracious God. But if we go back generation by generation, who are God's enemies? Most recently, it's, it's Al-Qaeda, right? Uh, I think it's actually pronounced Al-Qaeda, but I'm Southern. So it's Al-Qaeda. Um, in, the, in the 90s, it was Iraq. In the 80s, it was Iran. When my parents grew up, it was communists. And when their parents grew up, it was Germans. It seems with every generation, the enemies of America seem to be equal with the enemies of God. But when you look at the Bible, you see that God's enemies are both broader than our cultural enemies and yet more specific than a certain people group, a certain color, a certain language, a certain label. The book of Obadiah speaks to this because it shows the specific word of God speaking to a specific enemy. In this case, it's the nation of Edom, the Edomites. These are the descendants of Esau. Remember, uh, Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. Uh, Jacob was the father of the Israelites. So these Edomites are the cousins of the Israelites. These are children of the covenant with Abraham, sons of Isaac, the promised son. Yet we read in Obadiah that they're the enemies. The Edomites have disgraced the Lord by abandoning their own family, their own people. And because of this, the Lord is promising destruction to the Edomites. But what did they actually do? Why the Edomites? You see, the land of Edom is next door to Judah. If you went, look, go in the back of your Bible and look at the map, you'll see here's Judah, and then there's Edom over here, sort of off the page. Um, it's too close to Judah to have not been involved with the war with Babylon which Judah eventually lost. This is the very reason that God is cursing them. This is the very reason why Obadiah wrote this book, because they weren't distant cousins 
but next-door neighbors. In fact, they shared major trade routes and even squabbled over borders. Edom is a very specific enemy of God's people and therefore a very specific enemy of God. However, Edom is no different than any other enemy of God because what creates the enmity with God is their attitude. It's not their bloodline. It's not their skin color. It's not any external physical thing. It's what's in their hearts. Malachi tells us that God loved Jacob. Yet he hates Esau. Hates. And he destroys his offspring. Paul repeats this in Romans, so it must be important. Admittedly, this is a hard passage to wrestle with. But when we compare Esau with his descendants, it's easy to see that God's hatred, his enmity, is not with Esau, but with Esau's sin. It's with Esau's attitude towards Jacob that God finds his hatred. So what of this attitude? What is it about the Edomites that provokes God? Look at verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, and though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The Edomites were privileged to live where they did because just southeast of Judah's border with Edom is a mountain range, uh, a high and virtually impenetrable series of cliffs, which is where the Edomites called home. Think of Switzerland, whose alpine fortress is great for skis but horrible for tanks. The, The mountains actually protect them from sneak attacks. Edom was securely perched in these high mountains where no enemy could easily attack without first being noticed. As ancient warfare goes, the Edomites were certainly secure, but when it comes to fighting with God, there's nothing in the world that can protect you. Ain't no mountain high, ain't no valley low, ain't no river wide enough to keep God from getting to you. There's no earthly protection from God. Whether it's... Whether it's his wrath or his grace, if he wants you, he will find you. And if you run from him, he will catch you. And like Jonah, you can run, but you can't hide. Jonah didn't say, oh, fish guts, God won't find me here. In fact, this is a separate sermon, but it's fish guts that saved Jonah's life and fish vomit that uh, sent, God, sent him on God's way. Um, that'll be the next time I preach. If there's a next time. <laughs> you, you see, it's the Edomites' pride that is their eventual downfall. They're so protected that they know no fear. But look at verse 4 again. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down. Not in their place of humiliation, But in their place of glory, the Lord says to Edom, not in your insecurity, but in your false security, I will bring you down. In literature, we call this hubris. It's the tragic flaw, the one thing that can stop an otherwise unstoppable hero. For Superman, it's kryptonite. For Indiana Jones, it's snakes. 
But for Icarus, who made wings out of wax and flew too close to the sun, it was pride. Like Icarus, the Edomites were not destroyed by some Achilles heel, some chink in their armor, some back door, but by their own attitude. Verse 3 again, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You may have heard of a man by the name of Ray Kurzweil. Um, He's what they call a futurist, meaning that he, I guess, scientifically predicts the future. However, he's not like a fortune teller or even a prophet. He's a scientist. His goal in predicting the future has nothing to do with individual happiness, but with human development as a whole. Kurzweil has taken it upon himself to live forever. In fact, he truly believes that in the future, because of his research, no one will ever die. Kurzweil claims that he's on the brink of discovering immortality. He's a modern-day example of someone whose pride is their source of security. Because, you see, there's nothing in Kurzweil's master plan that protects him from a bullet or a car crash. All he can do is protect his natural defenses. He can try to protect himself from cancer or liver disease, like we all can. But what's going to stop his heart from beating if God ordains it? The Edomites are like Kurzweil. They are protected only if their surroundings protect them. And they are not humble in that. They do not thank the Lord for their security, but they actually challenge the Lord with it. Look at verse 8. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? Wisdom. Knowledge, self-claimed security, it's no match for God. In fact, these things are given by God. And as Job proclaims, can be taken away by God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The wise men of the Edomites may look to the stars or the seasons as signs of their security. They may, may even look to the fact that the Babylonians who slaughtered Judah did not slaughter them as their sole means of security. The mountains make them untouchable. But their wisdom and their knowledge is not protection enough. Look now at verse 9. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Not only is their their wisdom insufficient to save them, not only is their wisdom foolishness, But their strength will fail them. Their strong men, their armies, are nothing compared to God. You can look in uh, 2 Kings 19. You see that the Assyrians who conquered uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, um, these Assyrians were still no match for God when they actually came against Judah, the southern kingdom. 19.35 says, And that night the angel of the Lord went out, and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. The Bible makes it clear that it's not the king of Judah who staved off the Assyrians, but the Lord himself. The wise men of Edom could not trick God. The strong men of Taman 
which is the stronghold of Edom, could not fight against the angel of the Lord when he comes to destroy them. However, it's not just because of their pride that God would destroy Edom. Edom's arrogance in the face of God was also seen in Edom's apathy in the face of struggle. Let's look at verse 10 through 14. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. You see, it's not just their pride, their fleeting hope in their stronghold, man-made assurance in their God-made mountain pass. It was also their apathy. God says in verse 11 that they stood aloof on the day that strangers carried off Judah's wealth and foreigners entered Judah's gates and they cast lots for Jerusalem. Though Edom did not raise a sword against Judah, though they did not storm the gates of Jerusalem with the intention of slaughtering their brothers, they were just like the Babylonians because they did not speak a word. God says, you're like one of them. Their blood may be like Israel, but their hearts are like Babylon, like Satan. Their silence is deafening and their apathy incriminating. Uh, Martin Niemöller was a German Christian during the Holocaust and the mass deportations by the Nazis. Uh, Though he was vocal in his resistance against the Nazis, saying that what they were doing was not Christian and that the church should have no part in it, his theology never really encountered reality. He never stooped so low as to call for justice. His faith was beautiful, but it had no feet. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and other outspoken Christians, he was arrested by the Nazis and placed in a concentration camp. However, Niemöller later wrote that his activism was too little, too late. He penned a poem which reads, First, they came for the communists. And I didn't speak out because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists. And... I didn't speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me. Certainly, Niemöller expressed his guilt for not speaking up, but what he embodies in this terse poem is that he was silent about the infliction of others until it was too late. Not being a Jew or a gypsy or a socialist, he sat idly by and watched the Nazis relocate these political enemies to parts unknown. It wasn't until he himself sat in the gates of the concentration camp, like Auschwitz and Dachau, 
that he understood what his silence meant to those around him. The Edomites were not just proud, arrogant mountain dwellers. They were also silent and aloof. They did not speak up against the Babylonians. They did not fight against them and fight for the cause of their brother, Jacob. And Obadiah is writing them to say, like Martin Niemöller, you will soon suffer with them. But your suffering will be worse. Much worse. As I mentioned earlier, it, it was the sins of Israel and Judah that brought about their persecution. However, as the same old story is told and retold, we see a faithful remnant who always turns from their pride and their apathy to seek the Lord and his salvation. This is what makes Israel and Judah unique. Israel was brought into captivity and called on God. Judah was persecuted and defeated and called on God. Edom did not call on God. They did not repent. They simply continued to boast in their own strength. They suffered from a psychological disorder, and this is really what it's called, SEP, someone else's problem. On March 13, 1964, Kitty Genovese was murdered outside of her apartment building in Queens. A newspaper story reported that her screams for help were heard and ignored by her neighbors. And though this story has been criticized because it seems just impossible that people would hear the screams and tune them out, it still resounds with our story. Personally, I'm a fan of Seinfeld, uh, as you all should be, the famous show about nothing. But while it claimed to be about nothing, it was actually clearly about the cynicism and selfishness in our culture. In the final episode, Jerry Seinfeld and his friends witness a man having his car stolen at gunpoint. However, instead of doing something about it, they simply videotape it, mocking him the entire time. Now, I don't want to ruin it, but this was like 1997, so if you haven't seen it yet, shame on you. (laughs) The rest of the episode shows them going to trial and eventually being put in jail because of their failure to uphold the Good Samaritan law. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? The Good Samaritan. Hmm. I think Jesus said something like that. Jesus tells this story in Luke where a man is robbed and beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. By chance, a priest passes by, a holy man of Israel, the one you would expect to embody the grace of God and care for this man in his time of need. However, he sees the dying man, and he crosses on the other side of the road, ignoring his affliction. Later, a Levite, one of the tribe of priests, uh, who comes from the bloodline of Moses and his brother Aaron, passes by. And seeing the dying man does just like the priest. It isn't until a Samaritan passes by, a foreigner, one hated by the Jews because he's not a pure believer, a true believer, not of their blood, that the dying man is finally given help. He is the least likely of saviors, and yet he is the one who saves this man from death and restores him to life. The Edomites were the likely saviors, the ones who should have spoken up, and they didn't. 
They remained silence. They remained silent, and their silence angered God. Because of this, God would curse them. And as my mom would say, it's not a threat, it's a promise. And in God's anger and justice, he uses the illustration of thieves and robbers. Look at verse 5 and 6. If thieves come to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. As a child, I had this irrational fear um, that people would break into my house and not only steal our stuff, but they'd actually steal our house. Um, no, I didn't live in a trailer, so it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't that easy. Um, it wasn't until I got older that I realized that this was impossible. Uh, even if thieves enter your home and steal your television and your computer and your jewelry, they'll still leave the house. It might be messed up, but it's still there. Even if they came and plundered the grapes of the field, they'd still leave the vines. But God, when he plunders Edom, will leave nothing. It says in verse 18, The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Because of their pride and apathy, God will totally destroy the Edomites, leaving nothing left but ash and soot. There will be nothing left to mourn, and no one left to mourn it. But what does this have to do with us? Right, I've just given you a history lesson. What does this have to do with me? If you've noticed in the bulletin, I've titled the sermon, We Have Met the Enemy, dot, dot, dot. But who is the enemy? Are the Edomites the enemy? Or what about the Muslims and the atheists? I mean, certainly we can argue that they are enemies of God. But what about us? In 1970, uh, the comic strip Pogo featured a special Earth Day comic. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's about these nasty little swamp creatures somewhere in Florida. Not the good swamp in Louisiana, but the nasty swamp in Florida. Um, And so the two of the main characters are walking through the swamp only to see it littered and ruined by trash. And the famous tagline reads, We've met the enemy, and he is us. This is what the title alludes to. We have met the enemy, but the enemy is not something that we can just say is in the book of Obadiah. I learned about the enemies of God today, Mommy. The enemy, that the Edomites are the only enemy of God. Not even that the enemies are the ones we see on the 6 o'clock news. We cannot separate ourselves from the enemy by geography or religious belief. The enemies of God are proud and apathetic. And they are us. How are we proud? What do we take pride in? Where does our security lie? Is it in your job or your bank account or your marriage? Or maybe it's in something you want but don't have. A better job, more money, a good relationship, a relationship. 
Maybe if you get that, then you'll be fine and you'll be secure. Maybe your pride is that you've read the whole Bible in a year or 90 days, or that you're a better person than your neighbors and your coworkers. Maybe that you're a better Christian than the people sitting around you. Whatever your pride is in, it's there that you think, not even God can attack me here. Like the Edomites who were safe and sound in their mountain cities, we feel safe and sound in the darkest places of our hearts. The places that we think not even Christ can shine his light here. We may idolize our reputation, worship our own God-given gifts. Or we may revel in the most secret sins. Totally protected from exposure, we feel safe behind locked doors to do things in private that we would never do in public. These are our strongholds, and they may, not, they may be strong enough to hold back our friends and our family and even our own good intentions. But they're not strong enough to keep God out. And what about our apathy? A few weeks ago, turned on the TV and heard, like most of you, the news of a shooting at a Colorado movie theater. The news itself was shocking, and I even felt terrible that we live in a world where Things like this happen. But like Martin Niemöller, the theological hurt never really met the physical hurt. I was somewhat apathetic about the whole thing until I found out that I knew somebody in that theater. A girl I used to go to church with, she happened to be in that particular Colorado theater at that particular time. And she was one of the ones that was wounded. My sudden empathy was really and truly not only, but sorry, it was only because it became personal. Before, it was just apathy. Now, certainly this is an extreme case, but I use it here as an extreme so that we can then look to where else does our apathy come into play. First, there's the general apathy uh, that we have towards those who suffer in the world. Those third world countries where, where the children are starving, sure, we care about them. We even have a picture of little, sweet little Ndugu on our refrigerator just to prove it. But what about the suffering in our own community? In our own neighborhood? In our own church? What about the suffering in our own home? When was the last time your heart was broken by the suffering of others? Or even the well-being and salvation of prisoners. If it weren't for Tom Fisher getting up here and telling us about Kairos, I probably wouldn't have remembered that they're doing a remarkable thing in the lives of convicts. I probably wouldn't have remembered that Kairos even existed. If you had asked me, I would have. But I certainly would not have felt the need to pray for these men that are being ministered to as well as to those who are doing the ministry. Why? Because I'm apathetic. If it doesn't affect me, I don't care. What about the things that should affect us and don't? Like the consequences of our own sin in the lives of those we care about. How our sin affects those we sin against. We don't really care if our selfishness hurts someone else because we're selfish. 
We don't care if our laziness or bossiness or absent-mindedness or silence affects anyone, right? Not until you get caught. Not until it hits the fan. Not until you have to console the unconsolable because of how you screwed up. We're apathetic. What about the Great Commission? You know, our duty to share the gospel, to witness, to testify. It's always so much easier to just chicken out, change the subject, dodge that bullet. That's not apathy, is it? A college minister once told the story of an atheist who, when confronted by the gospel, said that you must really hate someone to not share this with them. What he meant was that when you pass up an opportunity to share the good news of Christ with someone, you're essentially saying that you don't care if they go to hell. And this doesn't mean that we should just go out here and start banging on doors, because I do think that relationships are an important part of this. But it does mean that we shouldn't be like the priest and the Levite who passed the dying man, assuming that someone else will come along and save him. Or if he's still there on my way back. I'll pick him up. If our apathy allows us to remain silent when Satan destroys people created in God's image, are we really any different than the Edomites who remained silent when the Babylonians destroyed their own blood? Yes. Here's how we're different. We have Christ. Without Christ... We are enemies of God, and in our sin, remain rebellious against God. But because of Christ, we're now able to see our pride and our apathy and repent of them. We're able to see how our pride and our apathy ruin relationships and repent. Because of Christ, there is now no fear of destruction, no condemnation. Christ, in taking on our sin, became the enemy of God on our behalf. As he hung on the cross, he was far from God. God crushed him so that he wouldn't have to crush us. But that's not the end of the story. Christ also rose again from the dead so that we might never know the eternal sting of death. Though God crushed him like he did the Edomites, leaving nothing. God also made all things new through him, restoring everything. Look now at verse 19, and I'll close with this. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion and rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. I'm going to spare you uh, the long geography lesson on the Holy Land. Uh, Let me just say that all those funny words, there's a People and places in and around Israel. What this is saying is that the land that God once promised to Abraham, though it was slowly whittled away and destroyed, it will be restored. And God's chosen people will live there once again. 
But not only that, they won't have to share it. There will be no more enemies. The enemies will be done away with like Edom. There will be nothing left. God's wrath on his enemies shall be a flame, a fire which will turn his enemies to stubble. Through Christ, God raised, R-A-Z-E, raised the field of sin, setting ablaze all of our pride and apathy. But he has also made a new and wonderful place for us to dwell. Not in Christ's death, but in his resurrection. 